To really get the benefits of drawing, it's not about doing a perfect painting of a snowy barn. It's about using a pen and a piece of paper to really look closely and connect. And the end result is the outcome of that. It's all about the process, not about the product. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Ronald Young Jr. Ronald, it is wonderful to spend some time with you. Tell me, whose voice did we hear at the top of the show? Well, that was Wendy McNaughton. And why did you want to speak with Wendy right now? I love Wendy so much. She is an accomplished artist and a New York Times bestselling illustrator. And she has such a unique perspective on how she does art. And I love her story about how she got into illustration. So how might I know Wendy's work? You probably know it best from the cookbook, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. She did the illustrations for it. It was a a very popular cookbook from Samin Nosrat that came out a few years ago. Of course. All right. Well, I am super excited to hear this interview, but something tells me that you have an extra segment exclusively for Slate Plus members. What will they hear today? I do have an extra segment. And in that segment, Wendy talks a bit about her early childhood curiosity and how it helped hone her ability to engage with folks and how that eventually became a part of her toolkit when she started randomly drawing strangers during her daily commute to work on the BART in the Bay Area. She specifically talks about the time she got into a draw off with one of the subjects. Wow. Okay. If you're a member of Slate Plus, you'll hear that at the end of the episode. And if you aren't, let me just tell you, it is super easy to join. As a Slate Plus member, you'll get to hear extra segments on shows like this and others like the Culture Gab Fest and Care and Feeding. That's the new name for Slate's parenting podcast, by the way. You'll get bonus episodes of podcasts like Slow Burn. And of course, you will never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's hear Ronald's conversation with Wendy McNaughton. Why don't you start off by introducing yourself and what it is that you do? My name is Wendy McNaughton. I'm an artist and a graphic journalist. Mm -hmm. The more complete answer would be my job is to keep my eyes open as I move throughout the world, pay close attention to things, talk to strangers, draw things I see, turn that into stories, turn it into books, magazines, newspapers, teach kids, teach grown-ups how to do all of that same stuff, and uh, and talk to you. <laughs> I love it. You, uh, you cross disciplines like journalism, social work, illustration, And you use your illustration skills to kind of do something a bit larger than just illustration. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, I appreciate the distinction between like the illustration and the larger body of work. I I also identify as an illustrator. Um, It is one of the things that I do. It's like a practice that I do that falls under a larger umbrella of just 
we could call it art making. Mm -hmm. I like saying artist because it's like this big umbrella and you can do anything in it, right? Like you could, I could, um, I don't know, hang a cardboard sign on a tree and and that could be an artwork, right? Like I could go up (laughs) and hug random people around the lake for a day and it would be an artwork. So let's just say I'm an artist and illustration is one thing that I do. Uh, Illustration, how I define that is bringing... Uh, some text or some other information to life through artwork. It's often done in collaboration with other people, like Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat with the amazing um, author and cook, Simi Nosrat. Yes. We worked on that for like, oh, she's amazing, worked on that for like five years together. And so in that instance, the job of an illustrator was to work in very close collaboration to help articulate the ideas and knowledge that Samin had in a visual form um, to reinforce her teaching and also do it in a beautiful way that kind of made your mouth water a little, you know? Mm, yes. um, yeah. So I tend to work very collaboratively when I do work in partnership with people. Um, in that instance with Samin, uh, she literally taught me to cook. I did not cook before that cookbook at all. Like I survived on power bars. Okay. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so over the course of, of several years, Samin taught me to cook all of the lessons that she conveyed in salt, fat, acid, heat, many of them she conveyed to me um, in a kitchen cooking as I looked over her shoulders, asked her a million questions, so got to be a guinea pig. And at the same time, I'd draw what she was cooking Mm. um, from life. And then those drawings that we did together, many of those ended up being in the book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. So when you talk about especially being an illustrator specifically, how does one get into that specific type of art? Is this something that do you have like an early memory of when you first decided that this was what you wanted to do? Or is your early memories of art just kind of like generally drawing stuff? Like, what does that even look like from the beginning for you? So I've drawn for as long as I can remember. It's the thing that I did. Some people play sports, you know, I drew. And I remember going to like museum and stuff. My grandmother would take me and I'd fall in love with drawings and artwork that had text in them. There's an artist named Jasper Johns. And I remember being captivated by his paintings. It said like red, yellow, blue. And I was so little that I could, that's what I could, and I, that, that made sense to me. And then later I loved books illustrated books like many kids do. And then as I got older, I loved books and magazines and I loved printed objects that I could hold at home and spend time with. And I think that's where I got the most exposure to my kind of like visual input, my art. And so when I wanted to pursue art as a career, illustration made, made sense to me. I got into illustration though, like as a job, through a very roundabout way, when I got out of art school, I went into advertising. I actually mm-hmm. became a copywriter. Mm-hmm. And then I went on to go to social work school. And then I was working at a nonprofit. And um, I actually hadn't drawn in like 10 years. I, I just stopped drawing after, yeah, after art school. I, I let go of the thing that I loved most, as I think many of us do when we're in our kind of you know, early 20s and trying to figure out, I think a lot of us kind of lose our internal 
compass and we start listening to the opinion of others. Yeah. And I was doing things that kind of on paper looked like they would make me feel good. And it was fine for a job, but I wasn't feeding my soul. Anyway, I was working um, in San Francisco and I was living in Oakland and I took the BART, which is the subway here back and forth every day to work. And one day I was on BART and I looked around and there was all these people who were sitting there and they weren't moving. Now, this is before the time of like everybody has an iPhone. People were kind of spacing out or they're reading a book. Mm-hmm. And I, I looked at everyone and was like, oh my gosh, these people are just like those figure models that I used to draw back when I loved to draw in like art school and before then. I wonder if I could still do that. And I pulled out my notebook and a pen and I started drawing people on the train. And seriously, Ron, like within a minute, it was like, oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) This is what I do. What was I thinking? Like, this is who I am, you know? And then every day, starting that day, every single day, twice a day, I draw on BART, I draw people 20 minutes back and forth to work. And then I'd get home at the end of the day and I'd sit down at my table and I had a little set of watercolors and I would paint them. And then I would post those pictures onto something called blogspot.com. If you oh, remember, oh, I remember blogspot. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Um, I would post it on blogspot.com. And um, it started this practice of me creating something and putting it out into the world. And by doing that, I got over my fear of sharing my work and having it be judged. And suddenly people started following it. People started commenting on it. Um, Somebody even offered to buy it, to Mm. buy a piece of mine. And I was like, oh, wait a second. Is this possible to do? can I actually make a job out of drawing? Now, mind you, I was like a strategic director at an advertising agency for nonprofits, right? Like it was not a small job. I was working really hard, Yeah. but I was also working a second job at home. And I was up until at least one o'clock in the morning, every night doing these drawings and paintings and putting them out and and having these little side hustle jobs. Right. Yeah. So I was working two jobs and I felt so deeply in my soul. I'm like, if I don't make the leap, to doing this right now, like to really committing and becoming a full-time artist as an illustrator, the window's going to close yeah. and I'm going to be stuck in this job job forever. Yeah. And it was the scariest thing that I've ever done. I had a runway of maybe two months of jobs ahead of me, you know, <laughs> I, and I guess it worked. <laughs> yeah. It obviously worked. I mean, I, I think the, uh, probably the thing that surprises me the most, uh, well, not surprising me. I mean, it, 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 it's familiar. Like what you've done is like, Say I worked more. 10 years. Well, I worked 10 years in IT and then I started doing podcasting and audio production part-time. <laughs> and then It got really scary in 2020 and I took, I took the leap. I had a little bit <gasps> of runway and now we're here. You know what I mean? Oh my God. So, like, <laughs> no. Okay. So wait, but tell me, did you have a similar feeling? Did you have that feeling like this is, this is the time? For me, it was like, I know I can't do this job for 30 more years. That was for me. And I was like, and if that means I'm going to go out here and fall flat on my face doing something I love, I'd rather be doing that than do one yes. more minute of this. Yes. Yes. Equally yeah. brave. They're both super brave. I mean, really, like, I think that it makes so much sense depending on so many different factors. There's so many of us who never take that leap. 
We would decide to stay in an uncomfortable spot because it's safe, right? So it either has to be so uncomfortable that we're going to explode or the upside has to be so glorious possibly that we're willing to jump, you know? Yeah. So I'm I'm wondering, like you're you're drawing on the Bart and you're refining your pictures, you're posting them, all of that. How would you describe your style? Because you had been drawing for a while as a child and all that was, but and growing up, but you had just gotten back into it. One, how would you describe your style? And two, was it the same style that you had before, or had something changed? People often ask me about how I developed my style, and my response to them is usually, "Well, how do you develop your handwriting?" How did you get your particular handwriting? Because your handwriting is not like anybody else's. Mm -hmm. The way we do it is through practice. It's simply through the act of doing it again, whether it be handwriting or in my case, drawing and anybody's case drawing, you just do it enough that you develop your own particular style. Mine definitely started on the subway on BART. So the way that I was drawing on the subway informed not only how I draw, but in fact, my entire trajectory as an artist Mm. on the subway, um, you have a very short amount of time, right? Until the person you're drawing moves, like maybe it's going to be three minutes until the person jumps off at their stop. So that means that I had to learn to draw really fast. Right. Um, I also had to learn to draw standing up because Mm -hmm. a lot of times there's no place to sit down. Um, So I had to be able to hold the sketchbook and a pen and stay really steady. Right. So draw fast, standing up. Also, I had to try and draw in a bit of a, I don't want to say sneaky, but, you know, um, (laughs) I had to kind of a little bit (laughs) surreptitious, fade in the background a wee bit so that somebody wouldn't notice that I was actually drawing them. Um, And if they did notice that I was drawing them, I had to learn how to connect with them very quickly and make them feel quite comfortable, right? Mm. So if somebody would look up at me and give me a look like, why are you being a creeper staring at me? I had to wave and say, oh, I'm drawing you and be able to kind of do this um, really quick communication and create that connection to put them at ease. Um, And oftentimes they'd want to see what I'm drawing. I'd show them, we'd laugh. Sometimes I'd ask them some questions and I'd actually write down what they'd say to me on their drawings, right? Mm-hmm. So my work evolved directly out of that practice. I want to talk about your latest venture, Draw Together. But before we get to that, I want to just ask specifically, when I see, like, for instance, when I see salt, fat, acid, heat, there's something that draws me to that cover, uh, the colors, the style of the letters, just the way it looks, you know, it looks both real and inviting. Like it, when there was something that resonated with me when you talked about holding a magazine, holding an illustration. I love that, too. I love bright colors. I love being able to to look at stuff, stare at a piece of art that's just circles and bright colors for a long time, whether it's abstract or something real. And I really like uh, the, the way in which you're using letters and colors in your illustrations. Can you describe your style? Like if you could like describe it to someone who couldn't see it, how would you describe it to them? So when I draw, I draw with a lot of attention and I draw with a lot of care and I draw often from life, 
which means I'm not really looking down at the paper that much. I'm paying more attention to connecting with the thing or the person that I'm looking at more than I am the result on the page. And so what my drawing ends up often becoming is something that's a bit looser. Uh, it's a bold line. And if I've done my job, that line holds the energy and the feeling that I have when I'm looking closely at the person or the thing that I'm looking at. And so it's very accessible and approachable and joyful um, or whatever the feeling is that I was having when I was um, sitting with that person or subject. We'll be back with more of Ronald's conversation with Wendy McNaughton. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we offer advice on how to get creative work done. So please tell us your challenges and let us help you. Drop us a line at working at slate.com. You can also send a voice memo to that address or give us a ring at 904-933-WORK. We really, really enjoy getting voice messages and voice memos. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Ronald's conversation with Wendy McNaughton. Do you have like a particular set of materials that you like to use? Because, you know, when you're on the subway, you were probably using the same thing every day. But like now when you sit down and you get ready to do some work, what's your go to materials when you're when you're making stuff? I have very specific tools that I like to use. I can veer outside of them, but I have a certain kind of paper that I like, Aquabee Spiral Bound, um, or also Soho Sketch. Um, it's a very good multimedia paper that can take both a pen and I draw hard, right? I'm drawing <laughs> tough lines. I am rough on this paper. So it's, it can take a, a hard line and it also can take watercolor, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I use a set of watercolors, Sennelier watercolors. Um, I've been using it the same set since Samin Nosrat and I got the book contract for salt, fat, acid, heat. When we got that book contract and got the first payment for it, mm -hmm. I went to the art store and I bought the fancy paints. It was the biggest deal. I could <laughs> I finally afford these paints. And I've used the same set of paints. I keep refilling them ever since. It's like my lucky set of paints. And I use a pen called the Uniball Vision, which is a good thick black rollerball line. Um, it's also one of the few pens that are waterproof, which means that I can paint on top of it mm. and it doesn't run. They're also only about two bucks. So <laughs> two bucks a pop at, you know, your local stationery store. <laughs> I also use watercolor because they dry fast. I can use them on the go. And also because I'm a perfectionist. Now I know it's weird. Like I, my whole spiel with drawing is it's all about process, not about product. Use it to get rid of our perfectionism. Really, I'm teaching myself that. Like I used to paint in oils. 
you know, with oils, you can wipe them away. Like it takes them so long to dry that you can keep working into them literally for years if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. And as a perfectionist, I would never finish anything. I just keep going and I'd overwork it to the point where I would think it would be ruined. That's why I use watercolors because they dry and if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, you have two choices. One, keep going and turn that mess into something new or throw it away and start over. That's it. Those are the only choices that I have. Same thing with using a pen instead of a pencil. You can't erase a pen. You do a line and you just have to keep moving forward with it, right? It's how I resist being a perfectionist. Instead of like fixing mistakes, I turn my mistakes into something unexpected and new. I love that you said it like that because that leads straight into talking about like your most recent project, which is Draw Together, which is something that you're trying to kind of encourage other folks to do, which is to connect with each other. Can you kind of talk about how this project came to be? Yeah. Draw Together is kind of the umbrella term that I use for any teaching that I do, Mm -hmm. right? Um, When I'm... Like I said, drawing for me isn't about really doing a good drawing. It is about using drawing as a vehicle for connection, for looking closely at the world, at ourselves and at each other. Um, and that's a practice that anybody can do. You know, to really get the benefits of drawing, it's not about doing a perfect, you know, painting of a snowy barn. It's about using a pen and a piece of paper to really look closely and connect. And the end result is the outcome of that. It's all about the process, not about the product. So Mm -hmm. Draw Together started um, the first day of the pandemic school closures back in Mm. March, 2020. My then wife, uh, Caroline and I were trying to figure out what the, you know, how we could support our friends who had these kids at home and nobody knew what they were going to do and how we're going to work from home and all these questions. And I was talking to my mom on the phone and she says, well, why don't you offer some art classes to all of those kids using your Instagram account? And I was like, oh, I never thought about that. I've never (laughs) taught kids before. I don't know what to do about that, but I do like kids. I'm like an art auntie to many, you know? (laughs) Um, So why not? So uh, on day one of the pandemic, um, we did that. Caroline held the camera and turned on an Instagram. I've never done an Instagram live before. Um, And I was going to teach people to draw a dog and we did it. And like tens of thousands of people showed up (laughs) 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 on the first day. It was so nuts. It was so crazy. I mean, clearly there was like a need. Everybody was trying to figure out what to do. Now, the thing is like, I loved it. Like Mm -hmm. I'm pretty performative. I have, I love a camera. I'm super fun. I'm an only child who does not mind performing. Mm -hmm. I'm also trained as a social worker, right? So when I came back day two, day three, it became pretty clear that as I was teaching kids to draw a dog or a tree or a cat or whatever it was, what we were really doing was um, learning how to use drawing to process our feelings. Mm -hmm. We were focusing on our breathing. We were using our bodies to move our kind of like all the scary feelings we were all having like through out of our bodies onto the page. And we were doing it together as a group that I did not plan on it being any of those things, but um, it became a huge community of hundreds of thousands of people all over the world who'd gather together every day to draw for 30 minutes Um, 
it's evolved a lot. It became a nonprofit, turned out a ton of educators were using it. We created a set, shot 12 episodes, turned it into a TV show, basically, mm-hmm. turned it into a nonprofit that's now in schools. And it served a ton of kids and educators. And I'm really, really proud of the work that we've done with Draw Together for Kids. The even more unexpected twist, Ron. <laughs> it turns out that a lot of grown-ups whether they be educators or parents or just people like you and me really need the same things that we were offering the kids. Mm -hmm. A lot of us were creative when we were young and then some grown up came along and told us there's a right and wrong way to do something. And if we weren't doing it exactly right, then we should be doing something else. And we stopped. And then we built up all this judgment and this perfectionism and we're scared to even start again. Because it feels like if we can't do it right, then why do it at all? And man, there seem to be a lot of us later in life where we get to a point and we miss it. We can tell that there's something missing, that there's like this creativity that's still in there. And we've been working in our jobs where we've been raising our kids or we've been, you know, focused on all the stuff we're focusing on. But we, we're ready to get back to like that creative self inside So I started something called the grown-ups table where I, along with tens of thousands of people all over the world, um, are getting back to that creativity again. Every week I offer a little drawing lesson, kind of honestly based on whatever I'm interested in in the moment. (laughs) That's good. I I like that strategy. Right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I figure if I'm interested, at least a couple other people might be interested in it too. Yeah. And then I give an assignment, an art assignment that goes along with it. And then everybody does their assignment at home and then uploads their drawing, takes a picture of it and shares it to a chat. And then we all share each other's artwork and comment on it. It's all hosted on Substack, Mm -hmm. um, which is a really great platform, a way that somebody like me can form a big community, you know, and the kids draw together and the grownups table. It's one thing for us to sit down and like teach ourselves to draw. Honestly, I think that might last three or four days and then we probably let it go. Mm -hmm. But when we do something in community, when we do it together, Mm -hmm. it becomes a totally different experience. Drawing with the grownups table is like an excuse to be creative in community with people and make friends. Now, there's one one aspect of these that you talked about you you didn't uh, get into, which is the one where you're you're walking up to it's it's actually going back to your roots. So you're drawing people on BART, you're you're going deeper into San Francisco, but now you've kind of gone back to that a little bit. But you've you've brought people in with you to do it uh, with the the draw together you're doing on the street with strangers. Strangers that draw together, strangers project. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's so true. That's so funny. So when you draw somebody without looking down, it's called a blind contour drawing. It's one Mm -hmm. of the first things you're taught um, in art school. And the reason it's so important is because when when we look at the world around us, we're getting so much information that's coming in our our brains that um, we literally cannot process it all, right? And so we create these visual shortcuts and we see what we expect to see. That's the only way our brains can handle it. Another word for that is bias, mm-hmm. okay? Cognitive bias. Yeah. Um, that has a lot of social implications, okay? Mm-hmm. we When we see somebody, we're not looking at who they are. 
We're looking at who we expect them to be, right? Mm. Drawing is one way that we can slow down and pay attention and look at who is actually sitting in front of us instead of who we think, who we expect is sitting in front of us, right? So I I know I seem like uh, somebody who's a little off their rocker when I do this, (laughs) but I love it more than anything. I take a table and two chairs um, out into public, like into I did it on the High Line in New York or downtown San Francisco and downtown LA. Set up two tables and a chair with a sign, a cardboard sign that says draw together. It only takes a minute. And then I invite two people who don't know them by invite. I mean, harass until they come (laughs) sit down with me (laughs) and sit two strangers across from each other and ask them to do this thing called a blind contour where there's two rules. One is they're never allowed to lift their pen up off the paper and the others they're never allowed to look down as they're drawing each other and what that does is it makes it so that they are looking continuously at another person for 60 seconds without looking away that is something we never do right Hmm. it gives them the opportunity to look closely and really notice all the little details that make up a person's face and tells a story of the life they've lived in a lot of ways It's also a very vulnerable thing because the other thing they're doing is allowing somebody to look at them. When we do this, we allow somebody to look at us for 60 seconds, and that is even more vulnerable, right? So after doing this for 60 seconds, there's no way that two people who have never met each other before cannot feel a connection. And so um, I've seen people... I don't exchange Instagram handles, exchange um, emails. They can get in touch and have coffee like when they're in the same city again later. Uh, It creates these incredible connections with people who never otherwise, not only would have they, they never would have met, but they probably never would have even given each other a second look. So I think the implications of this are actually quite profound. When we draw somebody, our pen, it's almost like sculpting. It, mm-hmm. When you really slow down and look in your drawing, it's almost like sculpting. So it's almost like touching somebody's body as close as you can do that without seriously invading their space, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when we do that, we get a sense, uh, the best sense I think that's possible of what it's also like to inhabit that body, yeah. to be in that body. And that what we're doing when we do that is we're developing empathy, okay? Yeah. Yeah. We're actually connecting to what is it like to be in a different size, shaped, whatever body. And that makes our experience of people and the world and how we move through it so much larger, so yeah, I am I love drawing. I love doing my drawn journalism. I love, you know, drawing my stories, but what I'm really committed to right now is taking everything that I've learned through drawing, through my social work training, through all of that and then giving people the opportunity, the tools so that they can experience this themselves because I do believe it is a completely heart-shifting practice. So it seems like with Draw Together, that's kind of like the culmination of all your career skills and kind of all of the jobs you've had. What does what what's next for you? What's your ultimate goal with Draw Together and with your career? Where do you want it to go next? 
So I've been doing these draw together strangers tables and it's kind of been like test runs, you know, Mm -hmm. and what I'm really looking forward to is not only me doing this, but giving other people the opportunity to host these tables. So I've made a toolkit that anybody can download at Mm wendymcnaughton.com slash draw together strangers, something like that. You can see it on my website Um, (laughs) so that people can set up their own draw together strangers table and create this opportunity for connection all over the world. Um, And also, you know, we're going into an election year and this country, wow, we could really use some looking closely at one another and connecting. So I'll be going around the country and doing this, ending up in Washington, D.C. So. Oh, nice. Well, when you get here, let me know. Will you come and sit down at the table with me, Ron? 100%. Deal. Yeah, yeah, I'm in all the way. (laughs) Wendy, thank you so much for being on Working. Ron, thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. Up next, Ronald and I will talk about finding and pursuing your passion and learning to talk with strangers. Ronald, I absolutely loved that interview. There's something so infectious about Wendy's attitude to art and creativity. And one of the many moments I loved in that conversation was when she talked about finding joy in her subway sketching. Even after attending art school, she'd stopped drawing as she started her career. But sketching on her commute reignited that passion and made her realize how much it meant to her. That's a killer story, but it's not always easy to find the joy we're missing. It's great that she was able to find it, but I imagine that there are listeners out there who are ready and willing to take a risk by stepping away from a safe career. Although I don't mean to make that sound like it's a small thing. It's a really huge thing, (laughs) but you can feel ready for that, but not quite have your passion. You talked about having made a big career switch yourself It sounds like you knew IT wasn't where you wanted to spend the rest of your life. But how did you know what you wanted to do instead? I mean, the truth is, I really didn't know. I, <laughs> what I, the one thing that I knew was that I didn't want to do IT for the rest of my life. I would go to work and be like, are we seriously going to do this for the next 30 years? <laughs> and that's what our parents had us convinced. You know, I'm a millennial. My parents are boomers. And boomer parents have a, a habit of encouraging their kids to go to college, get a job, and just get stability at any cost. Even in And in this case, especially for us creative millennials, it costs us basically our soul. It's like you got to go yeah. to work, do this soul-sucking spreadsheet work for the next 30 years. So for me, mm. the, the big motivational factor was the idea of not doing IT anymore, but it wasn't necessarily a specific goal until I kind of started thinking about how much I loved audio production, how much I wanted to get back into it and kind of discovering podcasts back in 2012 uh, and listening and saying, wow, this is possibly something that I could do. Yeah. And I guess also as it happened, podcasting was in a really growth period right then. I mean, you wouldn't want to get into like millinery or whatever. It had to to be something that was uh, having a moment at the time. Exactly. The timing was great. Yeah. I was really struck too by the specificity 
with which Wendy was able to articulate the elements of the drawing style she's developed through practice and repetition. You know, she talked about working with a lot of attention, looking at her subject rather than the page, using a bold line that doesn't permit do-overs, using materials that discourage perfectionism. I was really kind of inspired by that, learning to talk about our own style, whether that's as a musician, a writer, a podcaster, whatever our particular art is, strikes me as a really useful exercise. I mean, apart from anything else, it can help us figure out what we want or need to get better at. I wonder, do you agree? Do you make a practice of listing your strengths and also things you'd like to get better at? I don't list them, but what I do is I store them in my mind and I just harbor anxiety over them. (laughs) (laughs) Worrying, the great motivator. Exactly. I kind of like just worry about them until they they get better. You know, it's not necessarily a list, I would say, but it's just more like I I really think about the things that I want to improve at and I just try to make it a practice of bringing them Mm -hmm. into my life. And I think one of my mantras that kind of works for me is that I have enough time to do everything that I want to do, but I don't have all the time in the world. So there's the little bit of urgency that says you don't have all the time in the world, but you have all the time that you need. And if I keep that in the front of my mind, then it's like, hey, maybe I should be practicing a little piano today. Maybe I need to, you know, go for a walk. Maybe I need to do some push-ups. like whatever it is. (laughs) I just I know that I have enough time to complete it, but I don't have all the time in the world. So it's kind of like a a balance between the two to like think about how I want to most effectively use that time in order to accomplish whatever I want to accomplish. That is really interesting. I mean, I think all the time about the importance of setting priorities, but you added a really important twist, which is, but you need to believe that you have enough time. If you set a priority, you can do that thing. Yes. Uh, But yeah, just, just keep the bottom line in mind too. Now, I know that this was something that we kept for Slate Plus members, but I really appreciated that you asked Wendy how she learned to talk to strangers. And I have to tell you, those of you who haven't yet joined Slate Plus, this is a fantastic day to do it because Wendy's response was really thoughtful, really interesting. This whole question of talking to strangers is something I think about all the time, being able to have a real sharing conversation with all kinds of people in all kinds of circumstances is a really basic skill that everyone needs. And yet I don't think it's ever really taught, except perhaps in social work school, which (laughs) interestingly, Wendy attended. Ronald, as an interviewer, you often take the people you're talking with to quite vulnerable places. So I'm curious, what tips would you share with our listeners about connecting with people they don't yet know and earning their trust? I think when, especially when you're interviewing people, I think one of the best things you can do is offer a bit of your own vulnerability in exchange for theirs. And I think Mm. if you can build a space of trust and honesty in a conversation that you're having with the person, they will be more than willing to share with you the things that you need to know and the things that are pertinent for whatever interview that you're doing. I think one of the hardest 
And, and you know, to be honest, it doesn't work for everyone. Like there's some people yeah. who are just going to be guarded no matter what. There, there's nothing you could do to get their guard down. And, you know, yeah. for a lot of those interviews, we just scrap them because we're just like, we didn't get enough or we're going to pivot and talk to somebody else. But I think yeah. in, in the majority of cases, if you can just focus on creating that area of trust and honesty, and if you can offer a little bit of your own vulnerability, you don't have to overshare, but just offer a little bit of your own and be understanding and sympathetic to the person in front of you. Uh, then I think you can expect that in exchange. And that's kind of what I'd aim to do with all of my interviews. And I think you also gave away there a really important but kind of secret bit of advice is you don't have to use everything. Exactly. You know? <laughs> Just because you, I mean, and, and, and when we're making podcasts or something like that, that, you know, it's easy to say and hard to do. But, you know, whether you're interviewing people for a report or for a book or whatever it is you're doing, do the interview. But it may not use it, even if it's a great interview. So, you know, things can change all the time. So I think that's a really important thing that you mentioned there. Yes, yes. I want to say something that I, I know might be a bit impudent because Wendy is an expert and she gave really great advice about kind of doing this process with people that you don't know. And, and she talked about in her draw together strangers practice of just sitting there with a stranger and staring in their eyes, staring at their face and doing a blind contour drawing, the one where you don't look at the page, you just make a line, a, a, you know, just a kind of a, a solid line. And I just want to add my own input here, which is that listeners, if you're thinking about doing this, it's okay to practice beforehand. Blind contour drawings <laughs> look weird, even when they're done by people who have tons and tons and tons of drawing experience. So I think it's fine, smart even, to build up your own confidence by doing them in a kind of a safe space with people you know, or even with the aid of apps before you get out into the real world and draw strangers. I really like the app Museum, which was formerly known as Skitchy, because, well, it's a rule that... Uh, Apps can't have vowels in them. No vowels. <laughs> but uh, actually, I guess museum. They pivoted to a new name with, with vowels. So Extra vowels. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, exactly. But uh, that is a really interesting app that's designed to help people get experience of drawing other people's faces. So that's just my two cents. But to bring it back to you and Wendy, Ronald, I need you to tell me the truth. How do you feel about the prospect of staring into a stranger's face for 60 whole seconds and drawing them. So I'm going to respond with a story. Ooh. I'm just 15 minutes south of D.C. where we have a lot of museums that are all free, all the Smithsonian's. And one of them yep. is the National Portrait Gallery. And one time a few years ago, I went to the National Portrait Gallery on my birthday with a friend of mine named Myra. And we went in there. And while we were there, there was a an opera singer who was giving people the gift of song. And all it required is that they sit in the chair while they stare at you and sing a song directly to you. And the song is about three Whoa. to five minutes long. And I was Whoa. like, I don't know how I'm going to be able to give over the intensity of staring a person in the eye for three to five minutes, but I did it. And I remember at the time, <laughs> that time and any time that I've been in a relationship and I've had like the opportunity to just look a person in the eye because we don't do it enough. You know what I mean? Like yeah. even when I have yeah. conversations, yeah. I look people in the eye a little bit, then it, when it starts to get weird, I look away, then I look back and yep. it's kind of like a pacing yep. thing that you have. So the idea of yep. staring into a stranger's face for 60 seconds, it isn't like completely daunting. Like I think I could do it. 
Um, but I think mm-hmm. the challenge about it is I think eye contact is so intimate that it's hard to fathom doing it with a stranger and then doing something like drawing them, which I'm not good at, exactly. and, and combining yeah. those two things together. So I feel okay about it, and I'd love to have more extended eye contact with people generally. Uh, but I just yeah. think that in this case, it feels just like not completely undoable, but just at least <laughs> at the reaches of my comfort, like at the at the yeah. limits of my comfort, I would say. And those are the best barriers to kind of push up against. Exactly. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So I look forward to hearing a report on uh, when drawing with strangers comes to the yeah, DC well, Wendy area. Forces me to I draw for- stranger, yes. <laughs> exactly. I look forward to hearing how that one. Well, that's all the time we have this week. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you will never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Slow Burn, and you will never hit a paywall on the Slate.com site. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. And thanks to Wendy McNaughton and our producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with actor Jason Isaacs. Until then, get back to work. <laughs>